Hi, I'm Channing. And I'm Elise. And this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand that scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain really compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. Hi friends, welcome back to the podcast. In this week's episode, we'll be covering Matthew chapter 19 through 20, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18 for the dates May 8th through the 14th. The three main topics that we're going to cover today that we see come up in each of these chapters are Jesus's commentary on marriage and divorce. We also see an exchange between Jesus and a young wealthy man. And then finally, Jesus gives a parable about laborers in a vineyard. And each of these chapters offers commentary on relatively the same uh, events that occur in Jesus's life. So there's quite a bit of overlap. And it's not necessarily that you read one chapter and you read them all, but it also kind of is like that. The first topic that we'll really get into this week is the topic of marriage and divorce. And we see this come up in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And those and those verses read, quote, The Pharisees came unto Jesus, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Verses 4 through 6 highlight Jesus' teachings on marriage. He says, quote, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And then finally, in verses 7 through 9, we have teachings from Jesus regarding divorce. The text says, quote, They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Jesus saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. End quote. So I think maybe first we can take a look at the, like a historical look at how this passage about marriage and divorce are operating in the text at this time. From the book called A Feminist Companion to Matthew, we learn that this ancient society understood marriage as a public, social, and economic union rather than like a private, romantic, and love-filled union of, like that's more close to our contemporary understandings around marriage. Thus, although Jesus said that the man and a woman are joined together as one flesh by God, in the end, it's still men that are in control in this marriage. 
And if we take Jesus to be a feminist or as someone who is concerned with the well-being of women and marginalized persons, then perhaps Jesus's stance against divorce is less about forcing people to remain in unloving or abusive marital relationships and more about prioritizing women and ensuring their well-being, like relative to this ancient society in public, social, and economic spheres. In this way, wives would presumably benefit from their husband's obligations not to divorce because this society had little place for independent women as they would be left without money, land, status, and also be seen as social outcasts that were unwelcome in this society. Thus, Jesus's plan eliminates divorce for things that are for things that are trivial or like selfish reasons on the husband's part, and instead requires husbands to take care of their wives by living out their social and financial obligations to her. And it seems that perhaps this reading allows for an interpretation where Jesus was working within the existing patriarchal system of marriage and still trying to ensure that women and wives were cared and provided for. Yeah, I think that's a really important um, context to provide for this verse because it will lend itself to a certain reading. For me, I really found myself excited about verses 11 and 12, especially verse 11 where Jesus says, quote, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given, end quote. And in other words, Jesus is saying, like, I give this, I like I give this saying to some men, but not all men. <laughs> and I love this verse because it recognizes that there are those for whom marriage is not an attractive option. In the verse following this, Jesus specifically speaks about eunuchs as a t- as types of examples of those for whom marriage is a less than attractive choice. But I also believe that readers of the text can take this verse and apply it to similar and extended contexts. Alternate translations and interpretations of these verses showcase their flexibility and meaning. And many translators highlight an interpretation that there are many folks for whom their sexuality, which may include sexual orientation, or assigned sexuality, like assigned gender and rampant systems of heteronormativity, and people's chosen sexual practices, like celibacy or abstinence, do not align well with the teachings that Jesus just spent all that time outlining in the 10 verses prior. For example, there are folks for whom the prescription of cis heterosexual marriage, as outlined in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, is not an option for them. For queer folks, gender queer folks, for some asexual folks, for some polyamorous folks, marriage between a man and a woman is not for them. And I don't mean not for them as if it's some choice that they make lightly, like, I prefer vanilla ice cream and not chocolate. But what I do mean is that it's apparent to me that Jesus recognized that there are those for whom a prescribed cis-heteromonogamous marriage is out of alignment with a deep and integral part of them and would cause a litany of issues inside a relationship like that if they attempted it. One of the things that we really struggled with this week was the Come Follow Me's manual uh, with the Come Follow Me manual's insistence on interpreting these verses as Marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God, and it's just one of the pet peeves of both Elise and I to constantly see that at every opportunity, every mention, (laughs) that there will always be a kind of digging in on this like really strict and like 
closed interpretation of this verse. And I wish that the manual writers and that the church itself would embrace the same approach that it takes to later interpreting the doctrine of divorce as it does to the statement that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. In the manual, there's a lot of in the manual, it, there appears to be some distancing between the modern church's stance on divorce and Jesus's teachings on divorce with a little bit more understanding and permission, um, but that same flexibility is not offered to the teaching of marriage between man and woman ordained of God, blah, blah, blah. I wish that the church would try to be a bit more like Jesus, who allowed himself to answer a question around marriage and offer an additional pathway for folks who hold marginalized sexual identities. I enjoy interpreting these verses, of course, as they apply to cis-heteronormative marriage, as a great example of Jesus providing one way, not the way, to experience human relationships. Something else that I want to make sure we make note of is that in many of the chapters for this week, there are verses which read something like, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, which is a reference to the creation story in Genesis. And there are many problems with a literal reading of this line. First, it assumes that biological sex, or it assumes biological sex to be a fixed or determined or measurable element of humans. And we must remember, and Alok Vaidmanan teaches this in their book reports that they do on Instagram, but we must remember that the idea of biological sex is a framework that was created by white male scientists in the 19th century, specifically to justify discrimination against white women and black people, indigenous people, and people of color by citing things like, air quotes, scientific biological truths about inferiorities in different people. Additionally, people will use these same arguments about biological sex to legitimize prejudice against trans people. The argument basically goes that biologically, I'm hopefully you can hear the like pretend air quotes in my voice. Biologically, there are indisputably only males and females. However, this is not even scientific scientifically accurate because it's far more complex than that. Another issue with this line about God creating males and females is that it denies and erases the existence of trans and non-binary people. This has individual, social, and political consequences that we are seeing play out in real time with over 500 anti-trans bills being introduced across the United States. Many of these bills seek to block trans people from receiving basic health care, education, legal recognition, and the right to publicly exist. In political and social spheres, there continues to be a constant onslaught of transphobic statements and calls for violence and eradication of transgender people. To this, the National Campaign Director for the Human Rights Campaign states, quote, Such vile anti-trans rhetoric does not resonate with the majority of Americans who are interested in solutions, not slander. But that doesn't mean their transphobic hate and propaganda won't cause harm. Their words rile up far-right extremists, resulting in more stigma, discrimination, and violence against LGBTQ plus people. The rights and very existence of trans people are not up for debate. We will keep fighting back until we are all treated equally with dignity and respect, end quote. Yeah, I really like that quote. And if you're not really sure where to start or what or like what to do, you might consider turning to Affirmation, which is a group of and for LGBTQ plus Mormons, families, and friends. And 
this group is also currently run by trans and non-binary folks. Affirmation tries to create worldwide com- worldwide communities built on safety, love, and hope, and also promotes understanding, acceptance, and self-determination for individuals of diverse sexual orientations, gender identities, and expressions. You might also consider checking out the Trans Justice Initiative by the Human Rights Campaign, which aims to make impactful change for- changes for trans people. You could also review the anti-trans legislation in your state by Googling anti-trans legislation tracker. You can educate yourself and those around you. You can use Google. You can surely shut down transphobia and transphobic comments. Like the quote said that Channing read, the very existence of trans people is not up for debate. And we hope that showcasing some of these really prevalent issues in relationship with the text really highlights not only the relevance of the text itself, but also ways that the text provides additional interpretations that really liberate and provide opportunities for advocacy for marginalized folks. And so we really encourage you to get involved, take take action, and advocate as much as you can wherever you can. The next piece of the text that we want to focus on is the story about the parable or the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So a bit of a summary if you haven't had a chance to read it yet. Jesus begins this parable by comparing the kingdom of heaven to a property-owning man who went out in the early morning to hire people to work in his vineyard. The agreed-upon pay for a day's work was one penny, and those who consented to this plan also got to work. A while later, the vineyard owner saw more people, quote, standing idle in the marketplace. He approached them and made them the same offer he made the early morning crowd, and they got to work in the vineyard too. Throughout the day, the owner did this, like recruiting folks for their labor at the payment of a penny a day, all the way up to, quote, the 11th hour, or the time when the laboring for the day was nearly complete. When the day was done, the laborers collected their payment, a penny a day each, no matter how long they had worked. But this didn't really sit right for the folks that had labored since the early morning. As the text comments, quote, they supposed they should have received more, end quote. They spoke up saying, why is it that we who have labored through the heat of the day receive the same payment as those who worked for just one hour? The Lord of the vineyard reiterated that the original agreement to which they had all consented and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that is thine and go thy way. Jesus ends the parable with a familiar phrase saying, so the last shall be first and the first last for many be called, but few are chosen. There are plenty of critiques that we can offer this story, especially if we are reading it through a capitalist lens, talking about the value of labor, the perceived value of labor, and plenty of other conversations that we could have about that. But for me, reading this story, what really came through was something a little bit more from an internalized perspective. And I actually find this story to be quite encouraging and hopeful. For me, the vineyard is my community, a space in which I spend my time working on behalf of others. My reward for commu- my reward for contributing to my community is the same, no matter the amount of time that I spend there. For communities appreciate the work given them, no matter their measure, and pay their contributors the same reward, safety, friendship, connection, and belonging. Certainly, labor on behalf of a community is different from labor on behalf of a land and profit owner. 
But in this story, I like to remember that Jesus was using a familiar circumstance to teach about a potential new way, a way in which labor is shared and appreciated equally. In the communities I've been a part of and am now a part of, I recognize that I have a different relationship with those who have been a part of those communities for a long time. Those friendships are more familiar and maybe even tested a bit, and so they feel more secure. But the new folks in those communities are no less valuable, for they bring with them fresh perspective and exciting opportunities. The community moves around the folks in it, expanding and contracting in ways that serve and honor each individual and the collective. For me, a penny a day is symbolic of that friendship, love, connection, and belonging that is experienced in healthy communities. It doesn't matter if you've been there a long time or if this is your first time. Those same experiences are available to you in healthy communities. The invitation to community is constant, just like the Lord of the Vineyard welcome laborers throughout the day. Communities welcome and receive those who are willing to work on behalf of the collective. The reward is the same. I believe Jesus was trying to establish a healthy community with many of his teachings, and I find the parable of the workers in the vineyard to be an open invitation, a promise that for those willing to participate fully and offer what they are able, the community will be there to welcome and reward them for their work in the only currency that communities can, friendship, love, connection, and belonging. Along similar lines, so Jesus is kind of working in multiple parables here. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about these laborers in the vineyard. And then he also shares the story about this young rich man who approaches him and asks, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, keep the commandments. And the young man, after telling Jesus that he's actually kept all the commandments since he was a little boy, asks, what lack I yet? In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, It says, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But the young man grieved at what Jesus had said, because he, quote, had great possessions. After this interaction, Jesus said unto his disciples and the crowd watching, How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So Elise, I'm excited to hear how this story landed for you. But for me, I read this interaction between Jesus and this young rich man through a distinctly ecofeminist lens. I see Jesus's teachings as very earth-centric. He does, you know, in this whole time we've been in the New Testament, he does a lot of teaching about flowers and animals, the earth and the elements. Jesus performs many miracles to heal bodies. And I don't have time in our like 30 minute episode to go into like really detailed specifics of why I feel strongly that Jesus is a pro earth kind of dude. Um, But for anyone interested in reading a little bit more on that, I would highly recommend the book, The Flowering Wand um, by author Sophie Strand. But for today's purposes on the podcast, for a hundred reasons, I feel that the statement Jesus says about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God is spot on. For Jesus, the kingdom of God is an equitable, community-focused kind of place. You know, first, last, last, first, treasures for everyone, that whole shebang. Riches and wealth are often the consequences of a system which encourages exploitation and inequity. 
For some people to be able to afford more than what they need, and for others to be able to afford only some of what they need, and for others still to be able to afford none of what they need, that is a system of exploitation and inequity at work, and we see it in both the text and our everyday lives. The wealthy exploit and extract from communities. They extract labor, they extract resources, and they exploit basic human needs by putting a price tag on them. The rich cannot enter the kingdom of God until they unlearn the exploitation of wealth and relearn how to be a participant in community. I also believe that this statement can be read through an environmental lens, one that recognizes the full personhood of earth and all their beings. I learned from Peter Enns, who is an American biblical scholar, that there is evidence that the kingdom of God that Jesus spoke about is not a transcendent place above the earth, but a place in and on the earth, intangible living community. Not only do the wealthy exploit human relationships and resources, but wealth also exploits non-human resources and relationships. This is achieved primarily through the depersonalization of both humans and Earth's resources, demoting them from partners in community to impersonal and extractable resources. Earth is no longer mother, but dirt and minerals. Nature is no longer indwelled by ancient consciousness, but is instead a group of mechanical sources of food and entertainment. In order for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God, especially a kingdom that recognizes the full personhood of all community members, including the non-human ones, the rich must restore their wealth to the original source of that wealth, the community. The impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom of God isn't saying that the man himself couldn't ever enter, but that he cannot enter with his riches intact. The riches must be returned. They must be given to the poor, and one must learn to allow themselves to be reabsorbed into relationality and reciprocity. That is the price of entry into the kingdom of God. I'm really glad that you shared that because, well, this is yet another reason why I love doing the podcast with you, because we have very different approaches to sometimes the very same passages from the scriptures. But I think that these go kind of hand in hand together if we think about exploitation. And there's this line from Michael Austin on the By Common Consent website that I think is just too good not to share. Austin writes, quote, It seems that the richer Christians get, the more interpretive energy they put into proving that Jesus didn't really mean what he said about rich people. The camel through the eye of a needle? That was just the back gate to Jerusalem. Sell all you have and give it to the poor? He was using a hyperbole to prove a point. And Austin continues to write, If I had a dollar for every time I have heard these discussions in a church context, I would be rich enough to have to worry about it. Oh End quote. Which is so, <laughs> so clever. And when approaching this text, I think it rightly so confronts many people about the limitations and violence of wealth accumulation if we're trying to enter this kingdom of heaven. First, in a world where money gains us access to lots of things like gifts and privileges and experiences, I think I like I recognize that it can be difficult to think about money not only being unable to grant us access to heaven, but actually being the thing that keeps us out of heaven altogether. But why? Like why would this be? Well, on one hand, perhaps heaven isn't a pay-to-play luxury club where only the elite are welcome. What if heaven is actually a place where each person gives according to their ability and each receives according to their needs? Even more than that, 
What if we actually believe Jesus when he says that the last shall be first, and it's nearly impossible for rich people to get into heaven? If that's true, then it's not the capitalists or the Mormon church billionaires who are going to be in heaven. It's probably not even the working class. Perhaps it's the poorest of the poor. Another thing I love about Jesus's commandment to the young rich ruler is that Jesus seems to make connections between how impossible it is to truly keep all the commandments, which this ruler says he has done, while still being rich. I know it's really tempting to read the scripture as like a checklist of 10 items where you only have to do number 10 once you've successfully completed all of commandments 1 through 9, but I don't know if that's the case for me on this read. Instead, what if Jesus is saying something like, if you really want to keep all of the commandments, then you need to look at the role that class, labor, and profit play in these commandments. If we're commanded not to murder, how do we make sense of the fact that people with the lowest incomes have an average life expectancy of six and a half years lower than those with the highest incomes, and that people experiencing poverty die from being unable to afford sufficient food or shelter? If we're commanded not to steal, how do we make sense of a capitalist system that exploits the labor of the working class and makes profits only for the owning class? If we're commanded to love thy neighbor as thyself, how do we make sense of taking workers for granted and only seeing them as valuable and worthy based on what they can produce? What does it mean to care for those experiencing poverty when there are also billionaires hoarding wealth? Elise, what I think I hear you saying is that although these questions can help us reflect on how we participate in capitalism, you also aren't saying that like working at your job is akin to being a murderer. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Instead, these questions I really think are meant to help us reflect on the system of capitalism that allows and encourages huge gaps between billionaires and poor working class folks. Which is why Jesus' command to sell everything we have and give it to the poor and then follow him is such an impossible task. Yeah. But for me, this dream of being free from a system that demands my labor in exchange for my life and livelihood is still a dream worth considering, although I recognize the impossibility of it. Dreaming about a society that meets the bare minimum needs of everyone, including food, water, water, and shelter, may sound as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Dreaming of a world, a present world, not just like a world of heaven after we die, where all people get to experience the joys and pleasures of rest and community and friendship without fear of dying because you don't have money, is still one worth dreaming about and striving for. Which is why maybe the second part of Jesus's line stuck out to me so much on this read. Because after he gives the commandment to get rid of all of our wealth and give it to the poor, he then says, come and follow me. And although I don't know exactly, like, the exact way to dismantle capitalism, perhaps this Jesus guy has some good, wildly impossible ideas if I were to follow him and take him seriously. Mm, I love that. You, like, bet I know he does (laughs) I think he does too. And I think part of it is him saying like, do what you think is impossible. You think it's impossible that we could think about a world where there's no huge distances between billionaires and people experiencing poverty. Like then do something impossible. Give away all of your possessions and come and follow me. Like, yeah, take a chance and let's see if we can do something different. Yep. Yep. Well, and like who better to believe on issues of impossibility than a dude who rose a guy from a (laughs) 
the dead yeah. in the chapters that we didn't get to cover last week. Yes. So like, yeah, there, I think there's like real weight to what you shared there. And yeah, absolutely. There's like a really cool and like impactful call to action there. And like, what does that actually mean to follow a Jesus who's like radically mm-hmm. <laughs> pro community and like reparations and equality and liberation? And does it seem impossible? Well, like great. Jesus can probably do it. Mm-hmm. What would it be like to trust that like Jesus could probably do it? Yeah. 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 Well, friends, thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode. We're sorry we weren't here last week. Thanks for being patient with us. And we always love showing up to the podcast with you. We hope you have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred and we're grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you showed your support by sharing the podcast, leaving us a loving rating on iTunes, or connect with us on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We're deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so, so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends!